Ecclesiastes 5, as we look this morning, verses 18 to chapter 6, verse 9. A rejoicing contentment under a sovereign God. So we come to this passage. Let's think about three people from the Bible. Just kind of set the stage. Three individuals from the Bible. First one, Abraham, Genesis 12. Think about where Abraham was, Ur the Chaldean, and then how the Lord took him from there, had hardly anything. And then by the end of his life, he had riches and abundance. Another individual, Job. Job had a lot, didn't he? A large family, large cat, a large, large uh, herd of animals, mansions, and lost it all to different climate problems, not climate change, to attacking enemies. To death. A third individual. So Abraham, Job, the third individual we don't have a name for. David's son that he had with Bathsheba. Remember him? Who never saw the light of day. We last heard from Solomon in chapter 5 that those who hoard wealth and then they lose it all? What a waste of a life. They foolishly hoard wealth because it's a foolish thing because you enter the world with what? Nothing and you leave the world with what? Nothing. That's the case for everyone. And because of that, it's an absolute tragedy. That's the idea In verse 16, where he says, this also is a severe evil. It's not a moral thing. It's just using a word to talk about the, this is a sad story. This is really pathetic. That there are those who live for wealth. That kind of a person's life is unfulfilling, verse 17. They eat their days in darkness. It's unfulfilling life. It's a disappointing life. It's filled with sorrow. And they have, they're full of suffering and anger and they're bitter because they're living for money. What should we take away from that? That's what brings us then to verse 18. Following the hoarder, the person who lives for wealth, who's not content with the riches and wealth that God gives him, what should we take away from that? Well, the top of your handout is the, the main idea for this section. And that this is what we should take away from it. Solomon tells us we must rejoice in God's gifts, being content under his sovereignty. There are two emphases in this section. Joy and God's sovereignty. These are the two notes that are continually played. It's a refrain that runs through and continually is repeated. We hear it again and again. Rejoice, be joyful in God's gifts, and rest under his sovereignty. 
First of all, in verses 18 to 20, we see how God's will while you live is to enjoy the blessings that he gives. Let that sink in. What is God's will for your life? He tells us here. His will for your life is enjoy the blessings that he gives. Enjoy the blessings that he gives you. And he develops this along three lines of truth in verses 18 to 20. Especially in verses 18 and 19, there's a lot of kind of like meandering through. And so what I'm doing in this is I'm trying to help you see the main things that Solomon tells us. The first, number one, in verses 18 and 19, well, let's read the verses again, 18 and 19. Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him. It is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. So the first line of truth, number one, is this. You'll receive good things by working hard. You will receive good things by working hard. We see this in verse 18. The good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life. And then verse 19 where he talks about labor. Hard work has always been God's will. For human beings. Now there's a popular subject, isn't it? It's in our politics today, sadly. The very idea of asking, and I know I'm kind of leaning into politics, I'm not getting political, I'm stating a fact. This is what's being said there, okay? They say that the very idea of, of, of demanding that those who receive help from the government also work, if they're able to physically, also work at least 20 hours a week, that is just wrong. That's where we're at. And that's where so much of our country is at. But God has always said, always been his will, that people work hard. Give you some passages just to back that up. There are dozens in the Bible, but, but just give you a couple, three. First, Genesis 2.15, before there was even sin in the world. Genesis 2.15, God put Adam in the garden to just sit and eat the fruit, right? No, to do what in the garden? Work it, till it. Perfect. He had no sin. And God, his will for him was work hard. A second passage, Proverbs 14.23. Proverbs 14, 23. And by the way, who wrote most of Proverbs? Solomon. He says here, Proverbs 14, 23. In all labor, there is profit. But idle chatter, I-D-L-E, idle chatter leads only to poverty. In all labor, there's profit. Work hard. A New Testament passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Work with your hands that you may lack nothing. Work with your hands that you may lack nothing. God never condones. He never puts his stamp of approval on laziness. He always condemns laziness. Every time. 
What about those who had lots? Lots of stuff, lots of money in the Old Testament. What about them? Are they supposed to just hoard it all to themselves? No, God said, Israel, under the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, those who had a lot, they were supposed to help those who didn't have much. But it was never a handout. Again, a couple passages to back that up. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 25. Leviticus 23 to 25. So here you have a wealthy landowner. I mean, he has got thousands of acres of agriculture. He's got fruit. He's got oats. He's got barleys, all this stuff. Leviticus 23, 25 says this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Note, don't harvest everything. Leave some in the field for the poor and the stranger. Implication, what were the poor supposed to do then? Go there and do what? Work. And the second passage then is an illustration of where that actually happened in the Bible. In Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, where you had Ruth the Moabitess wanted to help support her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so Ruth said, I'm going to go glean in the fields. And she just happened to come across, happened to go to the field of Boaz, a godly, wealthy, rich landowner who did exactly what the scripture said. Second line of truth in verses 18 and 19, showing that, God says it is is my will for you to enjoy the blessings that I give. Number two, it is God's will and gift. It is God's will and gift for you to enjoy the fruits of your labor. It is God's will and gift for you to enjoy the fruits of your labor. That is God's will for your life, even in this sin-cursed world. What does this expression mean, these two little words, God's will, the will of God? This is what he expects. This is his desire. And this is the will of God Almighty, the one who has absolute total authority, who directs life's circumstances. Three times in 18 and 19, it says, it is good and fitting. All the days of his life which God gives him. And verse 19, rejoice in his labor. This is God's will. We know it's God's gift. He's the one who gives enjoyable things. Verse 19, he gives riches and wealth. He gives power to eat of it. Verse 18, it's his heritage. Verse 19, receive his heritage. Verse 19, is the gift of God. God gives these things to enjoy. Eating Drinking, enjoying. In verse 19, it talks about right in the middle, given the power to eat of it. So, think about your favorite food. Don't tell me, but what's your favorite food? Boy, I'm tempted to hear those. Anybody going to say my favorite, my favorite, my absolute favorite, anything else would be parsnips. Now, I know some of you like parsnips, 
My absolute favorite is spinach. I like spinach, but I'm not going to list it as my favorite. My absolute favorite, I know I'm going to get some amens here, maybe not absolute favorite, but you really like pickled beets. I'll pray for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still dealing with some PTSD from my childhood about those pickled beets. I'll admit it. I'm talking about your favorite food. If health was no issue, oh boy, I'm really getting excited now, okay? My favorite food, you know what it is, lasagna. I haven't had lasagna in years. The carbs just kill my blood sugar. I'd have lasagna. I'd have a three-layer chocolate cake with chocolate chips and caramel in it. And I would have Diet Mountain Dew. Why Diet Mountain Dew when, if health is no issue? Because when you're used to Diet Mountain Dew, when you re- drink regular Mountain Dew, it's like drinking syrup. It's just blah. I'm just kind of used to that now. So maybe coffee instead. When you eat something delicious... You eat all of it, don't you? You make the most out of it. But as a Christian, as one who fears the Lord, you don't make it your God. It's to be enjoyed. It's not to be the goal of your life. Do you see this? It's given by God. Enjoy it. Corn, parsnips. I can't enjoy beets, Lord. Sanctify me. You get the idea. That's what he's saying here. Third line of truth, verse 20. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life. This is talking about the hard worker who receives much abundance from his hard work. He will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. What's Solomon saying here? Solomon is saying here, that God gives contentment to those who obey his will. God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Think about somebody who's not content, who never has enough, who receives so much from the Lord, but they always want more. They're never content. They continually think about what they don't have. Do they have a smile on their face? No. They're grumpy. They're angry. That's verse 17. They always want more and they're never satisfied. But the one who recognizes God has given me the ability to work and he's blessed my hard work so that he has given me money. He's given me a home and all these other things. And I thank you, Lord, for that. And because it's for you, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Think of Galatians chapter 5. I don't remember the exact verse. I think it's verse 22. Where it starts off, the fruit of the Spirit is, and what's the first fruit listed? Oh, it is? What's the next one? There we go. That's the one I was looking for. Joy. We read at the end of verse 20, God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a God-given result of being controlled by the Spirit. And the Old Testament way of talking about a believer who is filled with the Spirit, controlled, 
filled, led by the Spirit. The Old Testament way of describing that individual was he feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord. I want you to get what Solomon is saying here. He says, number one, work hard. Work hard. A faith, control, obedience to God's declared will. When you work hard, you will, number two, get a paycheck. You're going to get a paycheck, and when you receive that paycheck, you will thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for the ability to work. Thank you, Lord, for this provision. You work hard, you get a paycheck. Number three, you enjoy the fruits of your labor. That is responding in a Christ-like way. God has given me this. God has provided this. Thank you, Lord. Respond in a God-like way. You enjoy the fruits of your labor. And then when you do that, you experience joy and contentment. Because you're not looking for satisfaction in the thing. That's a result. You find your satisfaction in whom at all times? In the Lord. And because you want to obey him, you because you want to please him, you obey him. And God says, work. And God doesn't say just work a little bit. God says, work how? Work hard. Okay, Lord, I'm going to work hard. And God often provides results from that. A paycheck. Where you're able to use that for the needed things in this life. And sometimes extra things. It is not God's will for you to be grumpy. We can sometimes put a a saint halo over someone who's, I'm just never happy because I'm, I'm reverent with the Lord. Well, we must be reverent, but what did Paul say when he was in jail to the Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Again, I say rejoice sometimes. Is that what he said? Rejoice what? Always. And joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not God's will for you to be grumpy. Now, undoubtedly, there's some of you out there that are just a little skittish about this idea right now. Well, we can get skittish about talking about the Holy Spirit because the wacko charismatics and Pentecostals, can't we? Because they just go way too far on that. We shouldn't talk about the Holy Spirit because we might end up there. Folks, just because somebody does something wrong with God's word, it's not right for you to ignore it. That's wrong too, isn't it? Both are wrong. Recognize the error and do right. So, when we think about enjoying nice things that God provides, we start to get skittish about that because we start thinking health and wealth gospel. Your best life now. The false teacher, Joel Osteen, yeah, I said it. He denies that salvation is by Christ alone and faithful alone. That's false teaching. But yeah, he says, God wants you to be wealthy and happy and all this stuff. There is a massive eternal difference between saying God's will is for you to be rich and it's God's will for you to enjoy what he gives you. Do you see the difference there? A big difference. What are some examples of the fruit of your labor? It's hard to list it for everyone. 
So I'll, I'll do a smattering. I think I'm going to do the shotgun here and hit everybody. You're my target, okay? You have a place to live, whether it's a home or an apartment or something along that line. God has given you a home. Praise the Lord that you are not homeless. Some of you love gardens. I'm almost a pickled beet level with that one there. Again, PTSD growing up. That is your joy, gardening. Getting your fingernails dirty. You love flowers and flower beds. Some of you, it's your lawn. You just love cutting grass. You hate dandelions or you love dandelions. You finish school and you get a diploma. We have some seniors here, folks. Four or five seniors at least. And they're going to finish their schooling and they're going to say, Oh, I'm just so mad. I don't want to be done. You think they're going to say that? How are they going to respond? Thank you. I hope they respond, thank you, Lord. That's the right way to respond. Thank you, Lord, for helping me. Some of you find great joy in the results of your labor in cars or a tractor or a bike. Maybe a favorite chair. Might be some other kind of a toy, such as books. Legos. I like Legos. I've kept mine. I haven't let the kids take them. They're mine. <laughs> Old tractors. Pillows. Some of you got a thing about pillows. I'm like, it's a pillow. You need one. And you have four dozen of them. You love pillows. Church buildings. A gift from the Lord. How should we look at these things? How should we respond to these God-given gifts? The God who gave you the opportunity. The God who gave you the ability. Does everyone have these things? No. And how should you respond then? Rejoice. Thank the Lord. Enjoy it. And God is central to all this. And these Short three verses, God is mentioned four times. This is showing how central he is to this. And so it's not a, if I can fit God in, he's essential. God is not viewed as some kind of a, a distant divine being watching how things go and kind of interjecting himself sometimes. God is not the all-powerful one up there, the one that you call 1-800-HELP-ME, who's ready to help you pull a stump that you can't pull. He's your all. He's whom you fear. He's whom you love. And you respond with faith and obedience. And you work hard. And it's often the case that he blesses with material goods. And you respond with, thank you, Lord. And you enjoy it. And this is God's will and his gift. Having said that, Solomon then gives a warning. Kind of a, okay, I'm going to give you a heads up here. And 
And that's chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. God often gives great gifts to those who work hard. And when he does, you need to rejoice in those things. But here's a heads up. It's a warning that God hasn't given everyone the ability to enjoy their wealth. It is God's will to enjoy what he gives, and that's often the case, but it's not an ironclad guarantee. you got to understand that too. It's not an ironclad guarantee. Don't think. If you lose everything, oh, God's judging me somehow. No. That is not necessarily the case. We live in a sin-cursed world. And remember, what are the two emphases? The things that are, are really hit, hit and hammered home in these passages is joy. And what was the other one? His sovereignty. And that's, where, that's what comes in in verses 1 to 9. We live in a sin-cursed world, but God is sovereign ruler over all. Verses 1 to 6. Your first blank here, number one, is God may not let you. God may not let you enjoy the fruits of your labor. We like the the first one, don't we? God blesses us and God gives us gifts. But when we come here, it's like, oh, I just don't know about that. And there can be some Christians who can be the opposite way. God wants us to be miserable. And if you're having a good time, you must be sinning somehow. Both are wrong extremes. We must remember God is sovereign. Verses 1 and 2. Chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. The point here, if you're following along in your outline, that there are some with great wealth who aren't able to enjoy it. That's what's said here, verses 1 and 2. Some with great wealth who aren't able to enjoy it. And he says in verse 1 that this is an evil. And again, just like the previous time, last message in verse uh, uh, 16, the idea of evil is not moral. It's not a sin. It's a tragic situation. It's a tragic situation. It's a hardship because we live in the sin-cursed world. And verse 2, there are many who have wealth, but someone other than a family member enjoys it. That's the idea of the foreigner there. Not necessarily a foreigner, okay? This is a stranger, a foreigner, someone that's not related to your family. So the fact that someone, for whatever reason, enjoys what you worked for, That's a hardship. That's a puzzle, isn't it? And in God's sovereign providence, he gives the wealth. And what else can he do with that wealth? He can take it away, can't he? Can you think of any examples in the Bible? Job. And Job said the first time, chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gave, the Lord take away. Let me give you some other passages, though. This is not the only occurrence of this sort of thing. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. 1 Samuel 2, verse 7. This is Hannah praising the Lord. And she says in 1 Samuel 2, 7, The Lord makes poor and makes 
rich. He brings low and he lifts up. A third example, Daniel 2.21. Daniel 2.21, where Daniel says that God changes the times and season. He removes kings and he raises up kings. A last example, also from Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. This is the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when uh, Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, um, he wanted to improve his, his uh, diet. He wanted to improve his looks. And so he, well, no, he wasn't planning on doing that, was he? God said that he's going to be humbled if he raises himself up. And so Nebuchadnezzar, out looking at his gardens, boy, a lesson to learn here. He looked at all his gardens, all his wealth, all his kingdom, and what did he say? Is this not what I have done? And what did God immediately do? Made him go nuts, goes out in the field, starts growing hair like feathers and really long fingernails. This is a creepy guy right now, okay? He's eating like a cow, and God caused his thinking to come back. In the Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar, after he regained his sanity and his position, he said, The king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways are justice. He is the one who did this. All his ways are true and his ways are justice. Solomon says about this, coming back to verses 1 and 2, that... This is a hard thing to understand. You got a wealthy guy. God, God blesses him with all this stuff and then he loses it all. He said, this is a tough puzzle. This is the idea at the end of verse two. It's vanity. It's a tough puzzle. It's an evil affliction. This is really hard to work through. It's a hard thing to grasp. Your next point, verses three to six. Comparatively speaking, this experience... Comparatively speaking, this experience is worse than being stillborn or a miscarriage. Let's read the scripture again, verses 3 to 6. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he, for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest, speaking of the miscarried child, this has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place. Now, before we dive into this, the death of an infant before it's born, is one of the most difficult things that parents go through. It is hard. Because parents get excited when they learn they're expecting. Trusting a sovereign God through the death of a child is hard. We have had two miscarriages. Many of you have had I remember when my brother and his wife, I can't remember which one it was, um, is either their, fir their first or second 
they lost that little one. We were there with him when she miscarried, held him in, in their arms. We were there with him. They named him Samuel, Samuel Greenfield. There's a headstone for him at the Greenfield Cemetery in Bound Township in, in Michigan. We still remember that. Over 40 years ago, when Trish was first grade, second grade, her little brother, just about two, was playing out front and drowned in their creek. Now that's not a stillborn baby. Is that easy? That is not easy at all. Solomon, I want to be clear here. Solomon is not saying that losing a child doesn't matter. He's not saying that at all. He is comparing two individuals. The first individual that he compares is verse 3 and verse 6. It is a man who's blessed with much. How blessed? He has a hundred kids and he lives, and it says in verse 6, a thousand years twice. Okay, you kids who are getting ready to finish third grade. A thousand years twice is... We must not have any third graders. How long is that? Two thousand years! Can you imagine living two thousand years? I mean, that's twice as long as the longest living guy, Methuselah, who lived 969 years. This guy has a hundred kids. You know, I see the obituaries of some of the Amish in our area and this guy who lives to be in his 80s, who's married for 60-some years. He has 9,000 grandchildren and 18 million great-grandchildren and even more great-grandchildren. I'm looking forward to that. I'm well on my way. Just need to tell my kids to follow through with that. This guy, he is blessed with a lot. 100 kids. 2,000 years. He's speaking over the top, okay? But he's never content. That's the point. He's never content. And as a result, he dies unnoticed and forgotten. Indeed, verse 3, he has no burial. That's the first individual. The second person that he's comparing with is the stillborn baby. The stillborn baby, it never lives, but it dies in the womb. How much time does it spend aware of the things that are going on in the world? None. It never experiences anything. Here you have a guy who has everything in the world, but he's never content. And here you have this little baby who didn't experience anything in this world. It also never experienced anything being discontented. Just looking at these two, comparing them in that way. Remember, Solomon is not saying it's a great thing for a baby to be stillborn. He's not speaking from the parent's viewpoint. He's saying the stillborn baby is better off. It never experienced that discontent, the turmoil, the frustrations of life that come with being discontented. Both die, but one dies with years of trouble. This other one died with not a day of trouble. 
From that standpoint, that's what Solomon's saying. From that standpoint, the stillborn baby is better off. Never experiences disappointment, discontent, and etc. So how should we respond to this quandary, number two? Verses seven and nine. How should we respond to this quandary? Be content under a sovereign God. Be content, verses 7 and 9. Now, I did something here I will occasionally do, and that's give you the whole thing, because these Proverbs can be kind of hard to piece together and see in their context. So let's read the scripture, and I'll just walk through what he, what he says here. Verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for wind. You could draw a little arrow from the this there to the wandering of desire. That's what it's referring to. The wandering of desire is a vanity and grasping for the wind. So Solomon says here, you need to be content. Follow these five points here. First, one has to work in order to live, but could never be satisfied, verse 7. All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Everybody has to work. The second point, this is the case whether one is wise or foolish. The third point, in contrast, the normal Joe or Jane may not have much, but he or she is content. So be content with what you have where you're at. The grass isn't greener on the other side. Look at beginning of verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. Is the grass greener on the other side? No. Better to be content with what you see and have. The sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. Boy, that looks nice. The grass is greener over there. That's what verse 9a is talking about there. And then last, greener grass thinking always leads to a frustrating life. It's like grasping the wind. You can see it. I'm trying to catch this, but I can never get it. And it's frustrating. Here's his point. You may be blessed with God's gifts, but God may hinder you from enjoying them if he doesn't give you that ability. So what should you do? Be content under his sovereignty. Be content under his sovereignty. Some things to wrap up, summarize, and apply to us. Remember what we looked at beginning. Receiving good things, it is in God's way, always the result of hard work. Don't let anyone else tell you different. Don't buy into it. A second thing, enjoyment in this life, that is a gift from God. And he has ordained how you're supposed to find enjoyment in this life through hard work. Parents, teach your kids to be hard workers. I'm going to guarantee you one thing. You teach your kids to be hard workers, they're not going to like it. At least initially. Why aren't they going to like it? Because they have a sin nature. 
And sin doesn't like to obey. And you just gave them a command. And sin doesn't like to, what was that old word again? Obey. And you just told them, work. But I don't want to. I have a headache. Uh, Welcome to life. You got to work. It's your job as a parent to bring these children up so that they will be God-pleasing adults. Enjoyment in this life is from God. It's from hard work. It is not from gratifying your fleshly desires. That's not where you find enjoyment. This is going to revolutionize your outlook on life. When, it, when you see God's will is enjoyment as a result of work, not just gratifying my desires, that is going to change your life. What do we do then with our culture? Our culture is rejecting this, isn't it? And is our culture growing more like the Lord? Nope, it's growing less like the Lord. So don't be surprised at that. The world says the opposite. Joy and happiness are found by doing nothing. It's a lie. But your sin nature is going to love it. And you got to crucify your flesh. And you got to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and obey him. So what's God's cure for covetousness? Being content with the blessings and the work that he's given. <coughs> Do you want good feelings? Get to work. That's God's plan. Work hard. Thank the Lord for that. God is sovereign in giving wealth and in taking it away. A couple last things. Because it's from God, this joy, the joy of the work and the product of the work, the wealth, if you will, we have to be careful about how we think about that and how we respond to it. We could have a tendency to get real spiritual when we think of someone who has wealth who has a lot and you might not and you could try to get real spiritual and say well yeah but the problem here is that God specifically says he does give this wealth and the opportunity to enjoy it and it is right for God's people to rejoice in it don't make it your end you don't make it your object but if God blesses that Receive it with joy. There can be a tendency to say, it's not fair that there are some who don't have wealth. Um, There are some who have wealth, but there are those who don't. So we need to equalize this uh, so that that wealth is fair. That's thievery. You work hard. You earn your living. What is God's will for us as a church particularly? You know it. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And the wealthy, they have a God-given responsibility to use their wealth for God's purposes and to help God's people. God may have blessed you with a, a 2000, let me see what year is it, 2023 brand new car, and you paid cash for it. How could you and I respond to that? Because I'm never going to be able to do it. Well, maybe not never, but I will be able to buy a 2023 car in about 15 years. <laughs> How could we respond to that? 
man, must be nice. Am I content under God's sovereign hand then? No. Am I rejoicing in what God has blessed them with? No. Am I going Joel Osteen on us? No. Because we work hard. God can bless that. And it's the person's responsibility to to walk in the spirit and respond to that with a a spirit-given joy, thankfulness. He's the one who gives it. Thank you, Lord, for it. And use it wisely for his glory. That's what Solomon is saying here. It's a helpful thing for us to see uh, a God-centered perspective on work, on money, on material possessions, and how we respond to those. Let's pray.